Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Northeast Scene Podcast. This is Keith. And Tommy. How's everybody doing? Hey, today we've got another very, very special guest, a good friend of ours, virtuoso guitarist and South Florida hardcore magnate, Brendan Ekstrom. Hold on, I'm Googling magnate. (laughs) Look it up. (laughs) Brendan. How's it going? Uh, pretty good. You know, uh, that's, I feel like that's a loaded question in these times, but generally well, speaking, I'm all right. Yeah. Speaking of those times, tell us what your day to day is like in Corona quarantine. You know, in the beginning, I think I was sort of, I was doing all right. And I was slowly every night I would have those nights where I was getting a little more like familiar with uh, staring at the ceiling and not falling yeah. asleep. And I was like, oh, my God, I forgot about actual insomnia. This is a real thing. Um, and then so I've been waking up later than I would like to. Um, I'm sure it's not making my girl particularly happy. Um, and then we generally eat some food, try to figure out how to entertain the kid, try to get her to do at least a little bit of uh, educational stuff. Um, she's super in. She's four years old. She's super into like. Uh, TV and uh, sugar right now. Those are her probably like her top <laughs> tier favorite things. So that's cool. Same. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, like they've been doing a ton of crafts, which is really cool to see because I just don't have, like, I don't have that in me to be like, uh, hey, good morning, kid. Like, let's make this thing. Let's make these eggs out of uh, uh, like a uh, old popcorn container. And like, I don't, that doesn't work for me. So <laughs> it sucks because like all of our, sort of bonding was mostly outside stuff and taking her to town and like having conversations with people and meeting people and showing her like taking her to the lake and throwing rocks into the to the lake or whatever just outside activities so uh it's just it's been different but circa is working on our uh our patreon so that is actual like that's an actual job where like we're trying to create content for that a lot um for people that don't know that's like a essentially a you know subscription a monthly subscription to uh the inner workings of a band and what essentially whatever a band or a creator wants to offer um and mostly we're offering um you know tracks that people wouldn't be able to get elsewhere um different types of uh, behind-the-scenes stuff that people wouldn't be able to get on Instagram or anywhere else on social media. And, like, um, you know, like yesterday I wrote, like, a long thing about um, – we do a, a suicide uh, prevention shirt every year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I was having a really hard time writing it this year because this this quarantine thing is really bad for – my mindset as far as a person who has just been moving and traveling all my life. Uh, so this just has really brought back a lot of depression, anxiety, stuff like that, that I've dealt with and really reminds me of like the agoraphobia that like, um, my friend who committed suicide, like he dealt with agoraphobia and like that, this just reminds me so much of him just being stuck in his house all the time. And, having to battle that anxiety constantly. So 
So I wrote a big thing about that on Patreon, like stuff that I just wouldn't feel comfortable putting on social media. So it feels really personal, um, and we have like a lot of cool support through there. So that's so. How can how can folks uh, find the Patreon? I have no idea. Um, you'd, have to ask, you'd have to ask somebody else. I'm trying to. I'm trying to direct some traffic your way. Uh, I guess. I guess just Google Circus Survive Patreon, and you will yeah, be directed just, there, so you, so you can support the band. Just support Google first, as always. <laughs> of course. Um, oh yeah, and then I'm. Why does to it work, have to go through Google? Dan? I'm trying to work on my own podcast, so that's like sort of slow going, but I'm stoked about that. But. Uh, Let's you know. talk about that a little bit. Now, folks, I, I've heard an advance of the podcast since I'm so well-connected in the scene, and it, it's good. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good, well-produced podcast. It's, it's in-depth musical interviews like we do with a, with a sports twist. Uh, what, when can we expect to, to hear it? When can, when can we get our hands on it? I have no idea. All right. Um, I feel like that's going to be the, the answer to most of my questions today. <laughs> So you can call this what's going on with Brendan Ekstrom. <laughs> I have no idea. I like that. So I don't know. I mean, I'm working on it and I'm, you know, I was discussing with Colin a lot of ideas about it, but really he was just saying it might be a good idea to get as many recorded as possible right now and then really start to formulate an overall plan. Um, I had a plan. It was going to go up on Bleeding Green Nation, like the mm-hmm. Eagles football podcast feed. Mm-hmm. Um but it's really it's just too different it's longer than it should be for something like that and it's not totally sports uh specific like it really it focuses more on uh musician and conversation and and like getting people to say crazy shit or interesting things that they've never thought about like as i was doing it it started out with the sports thing in mind but then as we started you know, as I got through a few of them, I, I really felt that that was the most interesting thing for me. And mm-hmm. the sports thing was also like, it, it felt like a secondary sort of thing. So um, may may end up being two different things. I'm not really sure, but I'm having fun with it. Awesome. Yeah, it was great. I, I'm looking forward to hearing more. And I think I think the key is to just do it. You know what I mean? You yeah. just do it and you, and you figure it out as you go along. You should Have trademark a- that, dude. Can you copyright that? Just, just, do, just it? do it. Yeah. yeah I think oh, when somebody might have beat us to that, but that's a great that's a great but slogan. It is kind of oh. like it is what Keith and I did though, is like we literally had absolutely no plan and then went, Oh yeah, so we're gonna get a hotel room and we're just gonna record a bunch of shit and see what happens. Like yeah, honestly, now, that's that's the best way to start anything, in my opinion. Unless you're yeah. putting unless you're putting in like a bunch of capital up front, then it's a terrible idea. Yeah. You should definitely have a plan. <laughs> yeah, and have have somewhat of a plan. We we had we had an outline for what we wanted to do. Yeah. We had we had our guests booked and we had a backup plan if one of the guests did not show up. So it all it all worked out. Yeah. It's it's coming together. You just gotta you just gotta do it. Actually do the it. name of my podcast is gonna be Coming Together. Brendan, tell us about your intro to hardcore some of the first shows you went to and some of the bands who made an initial impression on you. Uh, I was actually thinking about this cause listening to your podcast, um, I know some of the questions that you've been asking all the guests, which is really cool to have like some recurring questions that people to hear, like how people answer differently. Um, but yeah, I, my, I, I have a surprise for you guys. How old are you guys? I'm 38 
And Tommy, how old are you, Tommy? I I turn I thirty eight tomorrow morning. <laughs> oh shit. shit, dude! Happy birthday! Happy birthday! <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um. So when you, I swear to God, when I turned forty years old, uh, my long term memory just it's it is seriously just like I have to sit down and meditate and try to do research in my own brain, like dig through a library, just a dusty fucked up library. (laughs) That There's like definitely a ghost around every corner. It's weird, but yeah. um, So, so that question's interesting to me because I, I feel like there are some different elements that came together there. Uh, When I, like I grew up in Cumberland, Maryland, um, it's about four hours west of uh, of this area in Philly where everybody that we know grew up. Um, and there was no real scene around there. I had to either go to Pittsburgh or D.C. when I started going to shows, you know, D.C. or Baltimore. Um, but I had a friend who moved to Chicago for a while, um, and when he came back, he had he had a lot of music that I never even would have thought about because basically I was I was like listening to mostly mainstream music and I think when I was a kid like fourth grade I got into Iron Maiden and it was probably my first interest in like associating art with a band because I was my mom just was at somebody's house took me and they had Iron Maiden posters on the wall and I was like yo what is that I want that in my house. And then I started collecting Iron Maiden posters in fourth grade um, and and started listening to them. And, you know, like, I think part of it was, like, I had gone to the local record store and uh, the guy that worked at the record store was really cool. Like, he would talk to the kids. When I say local record store, it was like a major, like, CMJ or something like that. Um, but he would he would tell you like you'd come up with a thing like spin doctors or something. And he'd be like, dude, don't buy that. What the fuck are you doing? And, uh, (laughs) and so like he got me to buy like iron maiden and easy E and I went home and my mom was like, you're not listening to this easy E tape, (laughs) which, which like I was kind of like, so I went across the street and listened to it at my friend's house. But I also right. now I'm like, yeah, I should not have been listening to that. <laughs> like, there's nothing on there that I should have been repeating when I was in fourth grade. You know, that's um, funny because uh, in fourth grade I, I had the same battle with my parents. The the Onyx tape, back yeah, the fuck up. But there was like there was a big battle yeah. over that, and I yeah, but it was I mean it was good. Yeah, it's a necessary battle, I think, because now you can look back and know that your parents weren't they were at least trying to be parents, right? And they weren't just idiots. So that's (laughs) right. That's nice. They were making an attempt at it at the very least. So I I don't know. So I think, uh, so then, uh, so I, I was like a metalhead through a lot of my early years and I loved like, uh, Pantera and Sepultura. And, uh, in high school I was into tool and Sepultura and Pantera and like, Deftones, when Deftones came out, that was huge for me. And I also was into the grunge scene and the classic rock. Like, I was absorbing everything classic rock from the ground up. Um, And I don't know if that's because that's, like, what my 
the people around me, like as far as my mom and my sister was into Hendrix and shit like that. So maybe that's where all that came from. But it felt like it was important to me to to absorb all that history of music mm-hmm. and rock. Um, and then, then when my friend Ian went to uh, Chicago and came back, he brought Sunny Day Real Estate and a couple bands like that. And Sunny Day Real Estate became like my favorite band overnight, right? Like mm-hmm. that's all I listened to for – like I, I would put it on and listen to it all night while I was sleeping just on repeat. Um, <laughs> and then I barely listened to it in the day, and then I would do that again when I was going to bed. So, So like they're a band that I know – like all the nuance of every song, but I still don't know what he's saying half of the time. <laughs> right. Right. <clears throat> and, um, and then the grunge scene was happening. So that was huge for me. You know, like I was wearing flannel shirts everywhere. Um, Same and, here. Yeah. And, you know, like I was just walking around trying to be Kurt Cobain and be moody and whatever the fuck. Um, but then, <laughs> so, so I think, in high school, like around 10th grade, it was probably like Tool and Deftones and mostly mainstream bands and then Sunny Day Real Estate that were my favorite shit. And then punk had it sort of like, oh my God, those bands sold out thing where no one from like my town knew what sold out meant, but they were saying it anyway. If if Rancid didn't sell out, I never would have heard them. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So it's actually pretty cool that they did or whatever, but... So then I started to get into, you know, Green Day and Rancid and Screeching Weasel from that. Then I had an I don't know where Quicksand came from, but that's what I'm getting to. The first hardcore band that I got into was Quicksand. And in my musical memory bank, Quicksand and Tool are very related bands for some reason. They have such a a mood that is just it's this sort of dark and sort of groove oriented thing that that always fit sort of the same space for me in my mind but i don't know where quicksand came from and i had no idea that they were a hardcore band like no idea right. i don't think i knew what hardcore was really um and then another friend um who i like my friend brian who we were friends earlier in life and then sort of sort of disappeared for a while and then came back around and he sort of brought some some punk CDs over one time and showed me like no effects and a bunch of fat record stuff. And that kind of blew my mind because I hadn't realized that punk could have great musicianship. I was like listening to screeching weasel, you know, and it was straight up just bar chords. So then he and I started playing punk together and there was a very specific time of playing a show where people were just like spitting beer around and being punk rock. And we were like, fuck punk rock, dude. This is the (laughs) dumbest shit. Like these are like, I am not trying to hang out with these grown men that are acting like children. And this is when we were like, uh, you know, probably the end of high school or just after high school. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I don't like, again, I don't really know where hardcore came into play, but I was, it was all over the place all at once. And I, the reason I think that it took me a while to get into it is that I thought that it sounded like a bunch of kids trying to play Pantera and doing it really poorly with a low budget. So that was my overall 
outlook on it. I was like, this sounds so bad. What the fuck? Uh, which now looking back, it's like, yeah, because they actually recorded it in a basement because they wanted right. to do it, do it so bad. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, so it took me a minute, and I'm not sure what it was that really turned the page. Uh, I definitely was into old school hardcore bands like before I got into heavier hardcore bands, but but Minor Threat was probably the thing that I got that, like the Minor Threat, uh, whatever – uh, the greatest hits or whatever the hell that was called mm-hmm. and just played the shit out of that. You know what I mean? That was like, that was the thing for me, minor threat and then gorilla biscuits. And then after that, it was like, I was familiarized with the term hardcore and I went straight from that to listening to like 25 to life <laughs> 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 with no transition yeah. at all. And then, <laughs> so that was probably, you know, getting to the time where we moved to Florida um, and I was, you know, playing quote unquote hardcore with my friend Brian in the band 200 North. Um, now was, was that band from Florida 200 North? No, that was all guys from Cumberland. And for the most part, it was just Brian and I were like best friends, you know, and we wanted to do, we just wanted to do it so bad. Right. So we, we sort of just grabbed anybody that we knew could keep up musically. But it was a struggle to find anybody that was into that style in a small town um, and that could play, especially like hardcore drums. We were really lucky to find a guy that that could do that there. Um, But, you know, as with any band, it was like, well, that guy was like basically wanted to be a family man and a truck driver even when he was 20 years old, you know what I mean? So getting everybody to be committed on the same level was super difficult. Um, But it was a necessary outlet for us because we grew up in this redneck area um, with redneck people, and we needed some sort of angry outlet about it. We were just mostly just writing pissed off things about how it sucked to live there or how hopeless it felt. Right. And there's, I went back and listened to that, that 200 North record. And there is a lot of nuance there. There's, there's some, there's some serious musicianship and I, I encourage everyone to go check it out. It's on Spotify, 200 North. What's the name of the album again? The, the full uh, length with the tree I, on it. I have no idea. <laughs> even, even you don't know. No, it's called watching <laughs> the world die. Very uplifting. Yes. But yeah. So that, I mean, the thing about, it's interesting the musicianship on there, right? It's I think it's unique, um, yeah. And not like if you listen to Converge or Botch or, or something, it's like wow, these guys are amazing musicians. Mm-hmm. Whereas we were like, we're not amazing musicians, but we didn't like. I didn't come from a place where I listened to a lot of hardcore, so I was doing weird shit in there that might not have been uh, necessarily associated with what you would think of as hardcore. So how did you, how did you end up in Florida? Like what, what year did you move down there and why were you down there? Um, so, so that dude, Brian was one of my closest friends from Cumberland. And then my other close friend, who's basically my brother, his name's Ian. He moved down there after he graduated high school. So I think maybe 97 or 98, he moved to Fort Lauderdale and Brian and I, lived in Cumberland till probably 99, uh, just trying to do this band, right? Like I had bought a van with my, my, my grandmother died and gave me 
just left me some money to go to college and I didn't go mm-hmm. to college. I bought a van and I bought a guitar for our, the other guitar player of 200 North. Mm-hmm. And I was like, we're fucking going on tour. And, <laughs> and Brian booked it and it was a small, you know, Northeast tour, basically like Boston, um, just random cities, you know, didn't really even make sense. Then Brian was like, he just wanted out of the city so bad that I think one day he was just like, fuck it, I'm out and moved to Denver. And after that, I was like, what am I even doing? So I moved to Florida to live with Ian and try to find a job and like start a life. Mm -hmm. Then I started getting involved with the hardcore scene down there because Ian was actually part owner of Eulogy Recordings. Um, John Wiley was the guy that started that label. And we... Like, I went to a lot of shows. I worked at the label doing some things, just helping out. Um, and mostly just, like, freeloaded at Ian's house. Like, I think I got one job during the time that I was living there, and uh, I got fired what, in, like, two weeks What was the job? Uh, I have no idea. Um, I think I was, like, uh, it was a restaurant job, you know? Yeah. And, and after, like, two weeks, they were like, uh, we don't really need you. It wasn't like I got fired. They were just like, we don't really need you. I was like, dude, but I bought this polo shirt. Are you sure? <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, I like I said, I helped out at the label and stuff. But we started going to a lot of shows. And it was that was a very small, tight-knit community. There were a lot of hardcore bands around there. And at some point, I talked to Brian and was like, maybe we should just get the band down here for a while and start trying to make it work down here where there's actually a hardcore scene. Mm-hmm. So he came down to under North existed in Florida for a while. We played shows with um, like, I guess our, our friends bands down there that were active at the time was like Destro um, glass eater uh, <clears throat> and poison. The well was probably the biggest one. Like when poison, the well wrote opposite of December, they brought it over to Ian's house. Like when they finally, finally finished recording it, they right. brought it over and put it on. And I was just like, uh, this is going to be the biggest hardcore record, like hands down. This is going to be the biggest shit I've, like ever. Um, it kind of just blew our minds. And yeah, you could kind of sense it because I I remember downloading that MP3 Tresco put up on the site and hearing it for the first time and just being like, oh wow, this is a this is a big leap forward. So yeah, were dude. they were they pretty big down there before? Opposite of December? Like, did you see them in the two-singer era? Uh, I don't think I saw them when it was two-singers, no. Okay. Uh, but, yeah, they were a big band. Like, they were a big band down there. Um, they, trying to think what those other bands were, like Strong Arm, you know. There were there were definitely some bigger hardcore bands, but I think Poison the Well was getting there, you know. Mm-hmm. At, the, at the time... It's really hard to say what a bigger band was back then, too, when we're talking about hardcore shows. Like, do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, big to me is like, even now, big to me is like 100 people show up to every show. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I think about that. I think about that when I think about, like, Circa, and I, and I wonder about the bands I listened to in high school. Like, I wonder what kind of venues Quicksand was playing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, at their yeah. peak. Um it's really hard for me to have perspective on that, but 
But I don't I don't think Poison the Well was like a really big band. I think that they were just a scene band and that's that was a very big scene area where it was like all the bands played all the shows type of thing, you know. Um and I think the venues were probably like a couple hundred people at the most. Now you were in an early version of Until the End. Yeah, that was so I think at that point 200 North had just sort of fizzled out basically um like there was still the idea that it could happen but for the most part it was it was it sort of had run its course you know and uh like the drummer was had headed back to maryland and stuff like that and so john wiley who owned eulogy recordings was in a band called morning again which i thought was a really cool band back then um and he was like yo i'm gonna start like this hardcore band I got to try not to do a John Wiley voice. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's like, it's a habitual thing. Everybody does this like that John Wiley voice thing. All right. Um, so he was like, yo, I'm going to start this, this hardcore band. And I was like, cool, man, maybe it'll be like morning again. Uh, but when I went to play with him, it was basically, it was me and him. Um, Dan Mason, who I'm still buddies with Pete, uh, like I can't remember all the original members. Some of the guys are still in the band, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I was one of the first guys there, and it was it, he was basically just like, "All right, we're playing. Uh, we're basically just ripping off that Hatebreed album." <laughs> yes, and you you can hear that. And uh, Tommy and I were talking about this yesterday. I love like really ignorant straight edge music when it's done <laughs> when it's done well. Yeah. It's just and and there's some there's some bangers on that first EP for sure. So I mean that's what it was, and then I would try to play like a little octave chord or like do a uh, m- like not even a melodic lead, just like a melody of one note, you know, harmonize one yeah. note. And he was no, dude, I don't think you understand like the type of people we're trying to write this music for. Like they don't want to hear that shit. Uh, <laughs> this is just like we're basically like I can't, I'm. I'm censoring the conversation, but it was, it was like, the point was we're like dumbing down the music Mm -hmm. to basically, like you're saying, right, ignorant, hardcore. And it took me a minute to, to get into that mode and be like, all right, I'm playing bar, bar chords and it's basically just beat down shit. Um, but it was fun. I, I think I only did like four or five practices, writing sessions with them. Uh, and it was, I mean, it, it was always like a lockout in some weird parking lot in Florida that people had to mm-hmm. go practice at. But I mean, it was a good time and I kind of wish I would have got to play Hellfest or something with them. I think it would have been a lot of fun. But, yeah. Uh, so I wrote some of that first EP and then, then there is just like a revolving door of members. If you wrote out the list of people that played in that band and they're also like a straight edge hardcore band, obviously, yeah. which, which after the first, probably 10 practices I, who knows how many members were straight edge anymore but it wasn't a lot maybe one <laughs> <laughs> so i have a question for you with, with 200 north down in florida how the hell did you convince everyone else to just move down there and continue the band like maryland to florida that's a that's a big move um it was not hard to convince brian you know i think like we, we sort of were brothers and we just wanted to do it. Like I said, um, we had high hopes for it from the beginning. And it was like the kind of thing where 
when we were young dudes, we just like talk about our dreams at night, you know, walking around the city and being like, we're going to, one day we're going to fucking do this, man. Like we're going to make something out of this. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the other guys, I really don't remember. It's, it's just like, if you have been to Cumberland, Maryland, the desire to leave there is high. Right. So that weighed in our favor as far as like, yo, uh, if you come here, you won't be there. So that was part of it. I don't know. I think that it was just a short-term thing for some of the people, maybe. Like, come down, yeah. we'll see how it goes, you know. So 200 North fizzles out. I guess people just lost interest or moved back to Maryland. That's what that's... I mean, that's well, that's the way I'm painting the picture right now. I don't necessarily know what happened exactly. I think the next thing that did happen, though, was we went to Gainesville Fest, and I have no idea what year it was. But I'm pretty sure this day forward played. It was a really cool year. They had it in like this weird, uh, weird campground lodge that was like a Boy Scout thing or something. <clears throat> so it was really just like this large cabin that was like a big open room. I think you were there one year, Keith. Never to Gainesville Fest, but I think the one you're referencing was in the year 2000. Okay. I think. Yeah. So, I mean, that was a really cool festival for me because i got a, i got to see a lot of bands that i had never seen like like code seven was there and they just blew my mind that was the first time i ever saw them and that mm -hmm. was in their two singer phase and um you know like saves the day played and uh morning again played a reunion show that was crazy but i don't remember seeing this day forward but i remember meeting and talking to vadim for a little while um mm -hmm. somebody introduced us and um I think that that was like the spark that essentially led me to being where I am now, right? Was just that moment. Yes. So how did you get the call about joining this day forward? How did that happen? Uh, Vadim called me. And again, I have, I mean, I guess I should just say outright, I have no timeline of events, right? Because right. my, my whole life, it's, I've never been on the clock. I've never needed to look at a calendar really. So I don't know what year any of this shit happened. I, I do remember <laughs> that when Y2K happened and we were all in Florida and people were like hiding under the bed because they thought there were going to be like a missile strike and shit. Mm -hmm. But that's it. That's it. So, <laughs> uh, so, so at some point in my life, Vadim called me. I'm assuming at Ian's house because there weren't like cell phones or anything. Um, and basically said that Golan could not do a tour uh, he really liked my guitar playing on the 200 North records and thought that it might be cool for me to fill in and do some mm -hmm. stuff with them. So that, that was the first thing that happened. And I was like, sure, man, that would be awesome. Uh, and then were you on that tour? No, the only tours I was on were that 2002 tour with not waving, but drowning and hopes fall on open hand. And then the Thursday tour in, I think, so you 2003. Were on, yeah, you were, so you were on, like, the U.S. tours, the larger ones. Yeah. Right. So I don't even remember what this first tour was. I think we I think we played with, like, four in the chamber somewhere, though. Oh, that's um, beautiful. Yeah. But I'm not – I don't remember that tour. I just remember that Vadim called me and asked if I could <clears> fill in. Um, and I was like, hell yeah. And then we did the tour – and then a little while, it might have been actually, it might have been right after the tour that we were at the diner. Um, 
in Langhorn. Uh, yes. And this is where I first remember meeting you. Now, me too, yeah. I, I was upset because this girl I liked wasn't talking to me as much as I would have liked. And coincidentally, that girl was Tommy's ex. What happened? Tommy, well, who, was on, who was on the podcast with us right now. Wait, which girl? Yes. <laughs> Uh, I don't. I don't want to say her name, but we talked about her in the first episode. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, your your ex, who I think you were still with at the time, and I was. I was like upset that you know we weren't. I wasn't talking to her as much as I like. So I was like banging my head against the wall. <laughs> we so that is my my first memory of you. Yeah. Is, is sitting in the corner of the booth and just yeah banging your head sideways against the wall. <laughs> yeah. And me being like, yo. What's the deal? Yeah. What's the deal? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I wish Classic. I could remember that conversation. I, yeah, I, I remember you imitating me doing that too. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. So that. <laughs> I think and, uh, that and, honestly, though, I feel like we hit it off like straight straight away. That's my yeah. memory. No, we always got along right from the get go, and that's that's a good thing. Now, Mike Shaw told me that you've learned. The this day forward set just from watching go and play it live once is that true? Absolutely not. So we uh, so <laughs> that's so pervasive. Think... That's been a rumor for years. Like that's been one of the yeah. like urban legends. Because that would be, yeah, it's, it sounds like a cool rumor. But yeah, that's a really cool. For it. Yeah, yeah, we can edit that part out. So <laughs> I so so basically, I think it was actually the end of the tour where we were at the diner mm-hmm. and. Um, at that point I had just been asked to fill in for that tour. Right. And then Colin came up to me, maybe a little high. He definitely was buzzed, <laughs> but I don't know if he was drinking or high. And I think I was sitting at the table with you or somebody and he just sort of wandered over and was like, Hey man, like, uh, that was really cool. Like, uh, I think we might want you to do that permanently. Um, I don't know if like Mike's going to want to do it anymore. Like let you can think about it, but like, let me know if you'd be into that. And then he just walked, wandered off, like (laughs) floated away, (laughs) but he was definitely like smiley and buzzed. I remember that. Um, and so that led to like this whole thing where I had to have long conversations with my friend, Brian, which just felt like apologies. Like I didn't immediately join the band. I was just like, I don't know what to do. And then there was a moment where I was back in my hometown and Brian and I used to always go to this Chinese restaurant and I got a fortune cookie and it, I wish I could remember the exact words, but I actually still have this pile of fortune cookies that I have kept over the years. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it said something like, um, Basically, it was saying, like, it's time to move on to a new adventure type of thing. Ooh. And and literally, that is why I joined this day forward. I don't know if I would have done it if it wasn't for this fortune cookie thing. Um, and then I remember talking to Brian and being like, man, we worked so hard for all of this over the years. So 200 North was still an idea, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was just a really rough conversation to have. But he was not upset about it. I was upset about it. And I was upset because I was just like, yo, I've been offered the opportunity to tour the country, you know? And Mm -hmm. this is what we've always wanted to do. And I feel like I have to take this chance, right? So there was that. And then 
then I think I basically got back to this day forward guys and said, yes. Um, and then there was another tour coming up. I don't remember what it was or who it was with, but I came up actually, this might've been before that first tour, but I do remember sitting at Vadim's house, like at his mom's house and going over all of the parts and learning all the songs Mm-hmm. And I I think I did it in like a day or two, but every night when I went to bed, I couldn't sleep because I had all of these guitar parts for all of these songs running through my head. And the songs are created in a way such that it's like you could move any of the riffs between almost any song and they would <laughs> right. still make sense. Yeah, yeah. And the, the riffs did not repeat in the, early, the, yeah, in the so. early albums. I remember when I filled in for bass, and that was one of the first things Gary said to me. He's like, you know, our parts don't repeat. So it's a, it's a lot of parts to learn. It's a lot of stuff, and it, it really felt like just a jigsaw puzzle. And I would just be laying on the couch at night like, oh, my God, how am I going to remember how all this shit goes? Uh, which blows my mind. And I was listening to Vadim's episode that you did, um, which was really cool, by the way. But Thank he you. was talking about how uh, how he learned all the This Day Forward songs on the way, like in the van somewhere. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And like you, how... you asked him how he did it, right? And, uh, yeah. And, and the, I think the conversation turned to, him, turned to him just talking about like his music knowledge a little bit. Mm-hmm. That That is not how he did it. He did it because he's like really fucking smart. That that's what this breaks down to is like, if you have the type of brain that can retain knowledge quickly, then mm-hmm. you can do that. Yeah. I asked him, I said, how did you do it so easily? And he said, it wasn't easy. It was repetition. But then I thought, motherfucker, you, you were in, a van. in the car <laughs> you, on the way to the van. show. That's yeah. in my mind, that's easy. So he, yeah, he's, he's just a virtuoso in my mind. So yeah, I mean, there's a reason he's working for NASA and I'm sitting <laughs> in a base basement right now, but but I think that's a big part of that, yeah, for sure. But uh, dude, I mean, it was it was exhausting to learn all those songs and the way they came together. But yeah, uh, so I have a question: what yeah. what ended up happening to Brian? Because that's that's tough. I mean, you guys were partners, you musical partners. You moved from Maryland to, down to Florida together. You're in this thing together. What what did he end up doing? So I think he went back to Denver for a while and then moved to California. Uh, he works at Apple now and. He got married a while ago and we're still like, we're still basically brothers, but he, he has an Instagram page that is like, I'm not going to be able to remember the name of it. I should actually plug it, but it's like uh, Spencer Wayne. He covers like all these hardcore songs. You have to have seen it. I feel like I've sent it over at some point to the, the stay forward chat, but he does like uh mad ball songs, but covers them like as if it was uh, Morrissey singing him or something like that. <laughs> and he wears like he's, but he's a redneck the whole time he's doing it, has this big fake mustache on. Um, so he's like one of the funniest and smartest people I've ever met. Like he's like the Jack Black of our friend zone, you know what I mean? Like of our little friends circle. But um, the thing that he's doing is fun and it's really cool because it's gotten a lot of, uh, a lot of hardcore bands that he grew up and we grew up listening to have like gone there and commented on it and been like, this is fucking amazing. I love what you're doing. Um, mm-hmm. But he's always sort of 
afraid that like Danny Diablo is going to show up and beat the shit out of him or something for doing it. You know what I mean? Like it's like a weird line to walk. Yeah. Uh, I, I would be afraid. I'm afraid of that now. And I haven't even said anything about that. <laughs> it was difficult to, uh, to do that, you know, but I think, I don't think it like, I think it was probably hard for him, but we've never had a really long discussion about like whether it fucked him up or fucked our friendship up. I think that the bottom line is, that with a lot of these things moving on, there's there's a ceiling for a lot of projects, you know. And yes. you know, once a, once a certain amount of goals are hit, then there's an awareness that it's time to move on. Mm-hmm. So now you're in this day forward. You joined a little bit after Kairos came out. Uh, was there any difficulty to navigate uh, assimilating into the band or? Did, you know, did everyone just kind of get along right away? How did, how was it? Um, I think we all got along pretty well as far as touring and everything. There was never really a point that I felt like I was in the band until we sat down and started writing together. Mm-hmm. And then I and then I remember sort of asking, "What type of input do you want from me?" And they were like, "You're in the band, you know, like act like you're in the band." <laughs> And that's so, when everything went to shit. Then <laughs> <laughs> you're like, all right, motherfuckers, this is how it's going to go. No. Right. So I you, think, yeah, up until then, touring was just, I think it was pretty easy and fun. Yeah. So I was talking to you a little while ago, and you said you you wanted to uh, correct some mistakes made Mike made on the podcast about the, the Equal Vision basketball game. That's, that's right. I'm, the, here to, I'm here to set the record straight. Yeah, so let's hear about that. All right. It's going to be short. Yeah, oh, um, and uh, folks, in case you didn't hear, there, there was a basketball game, I think, at Help Fest 2002 where members of All Else Failed and This Day Forward and the guys who work at Equal Vision all played basketball together, and that's ultimately what led to them getting signed to Equal Vision. And Brendan is going to give us his take on that story. So, Brendan, take it away. Yeah, so they had a basketball court there. I actually, man, they so people were playing basketball all day while the hardcore fest was going on on the other side. Um, and Mike, had, I think, so he was on a team with Steve Reddy, and I don't remember who else was on that team with him. Um, but this was still like I was still part of the Florida crew at this time, right? right. Like, so I was out there playing. I had Adrian from um shit I'm going to forget what his band is called but this dude is like I think he's probably 62 or 63 and I I think that it was Jason um one of the not Jason uh the guitar player of Glass Eater so I had I had the Florida crew and I just wanted to say that Mike's team was like 15 and 1 because <laughs> we were the only team to beat them and that was part of the conversation that day was was Steve being like, yo, you guys are the only team that even, you know, gave us a run. Like, that was crazy. Um, and that's my only interaction that I had with Steve. So I only came on the podcast today to say that we beat Mike's team that day. However, oh. however I do want to say that, like, Mike is actually probably the best basketball player that I've ever played with. Like, just... For like for street sessions and for just like jamming, 
and and playing backyard ball, man, Mike is so fucking good. He's good. It's, He's it's, really quick. Yeah. Like when you watch him, it's impressive. Um, but yeah, that was that's a funny thing to look back at. So now you're in this day forward. You're touring. We're writing the last record. Tell us about the last record being in response. Tell us about writing that record and and your headspace during that whole that whole thing, if you can remember. Well, I can't, but I'll say stuff. So, <laughs> I, you know, it's interesting to hear. I'm glad everybody else sort of had these conversations first, so I can be reminded of how some of the stuff went down. But, you know, we were in Colin's basement, his parents' basement, um, and Vadim saying that we were there like five days a week just kind of rocked me. I was like, holy shit, we worked hard on that record. And that probably explains a lot of, um, of, I guess, the discontent and sort of um, the issues that we had while we were writing that record because I would say that the majority of the input as far as writing came from Colin and, and Vadim and I, and Mm -hmm. I remember actually being sort of bummed that Gary wasn't writing more music. Um, because I was under the impression that he wrote a lot of music for Kairos. Mm -hmm. And to, to this day, Kairos is my favorite, this day forward record. Um, and part of that is maybe just because I can see it from outside. Like mm-hmm. I can I can tear in response down if I want to and think about <laughs> all the things, have all the memories and associations, but I can just put Kairos on and listen to it, right? Yes. Um, I really wish that we had been getting more sort of input from Gary during that time. So that was a thing that I was always like trying to push him to – give input and um maybe he just wasn't there so i should have probably just shut up (laughs) did he not want to or did it just not happen it just like that's what i'm saying it's like maybe he just maybe he just wasn't in the place at the time so Mm -hmm. you know i mean i was still learning how to write a record with people that's probably the first that's actually definitely my first experience of writing a record with people you know Mm -hmm. um and it was a bunch of new minds in a room together that had never done it before. Like those guys had done it once, you know, Vadim had only done it once with them. Right. With, with Kairos. Right. So, so it was a lot, it was still new for a lot of people. Um, and I remember a lot of, a lot of cool things happening that we were excited about and being like, dude, this is, this is new. It feels fresh. It's really awesome. But I, I mostly remember people just being really frustrated and, after Vadim said, reminded me like how hard and how long we worked on it. There's, yeah, no wonder we were frustrated. That's an exhausting amount of time to work on um, something that is so personal and important to you. Like, it, you could take one part of any song, and I could, it could be like the most important thing ever to me. And if it was played a different way, it might be the most important thing ever to Vadim, right? Mm-hmm. So having a discussion just about this five-second part in a song could be like an exhausting three-hour thing or two-day thing where we're like still trying to figure out how to please everybody or to make make it – or to bend it away that everybody's happy. You know what I mean? So I don't know. I mean I – 
that it was fucking hard, right? <laughs> I guess I'll just say that. But. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, um, there was there was tension, I, and I, I was with you guys during those days. There was there was, and not not like anything juicy or salacious, but just regular band tension, you know, on, on, I think on that first full U.S. tour I went with you, and there was a lot of pressure going into writing that record, I think. I mean, this is, this is a, Equal Vision is a, is a classic label in yeah. my mind, and, and just, you know, coming out with a record on there and the pressures of having to deliver and then being on tour, you were on tour nine months out of that last year. It's a lot. It's a lot for 23 year olds, 24 year olds. That's the thing too. I don't know. I don't think I thought about the pressure, but I think that the pressure, I think Colin probably did, you know, cause Colin just has an awareness about things like that. And I was just like, didn't care about that stuff. I just wanted to make music. Right. I, I probably wasn't thinking about it as much. Um, but I, I mean, I definitely remember some times where it was like, you know, whether it was me and Colin or Vadim and Colin or me and Vadim, like getting into something and then it getting heated and then Gary just putting his bass down and leaving. And we were yeah. like, and we were like, did he just quit the band? <laughs> and then the next day he'd just be there and he'd be like, what's up guys? And we'd be like, all right, I guess he didn't quit the band. Everything's cool. Um, but we were like a bunch of angry young dudes that were just trying to figure out what the hell we were doing. Right. So I don't know. I don't have a lot of, a lot of insight into that time. It's, it's really fuzzy. Um, I think that a lot, I do think that a lot of the music came out of the chaos of our inability to communicate at the highest level. Um, and so that's part of what the record is in a sense. I've always sort of thought about it like that. When did you hear that the band was going to be done? I think everybody probably has a different version of that. And it's interesting to think that we've never really discussed it since, mm-hmm. you know, and that, and now people are just hearing everybody's different version of it. Right. And that's one thing I'm interested in knowing from everybody. Yeah. Cause I, I didn't even know. I'd never talked to anybody about it. I just heard that it was over, that it was going to be over one day. Well, I, touring was hard, man. Like we were in a van, we were not making much money. And that that's the case for a lot of hardcore bands, you know, and a lot of smaller bands. But there was also, I, and I don't know if, I don't know if it was like chicken or the egg, but there was discontent within the band, you know, like there was like arguing, frustration, um, and, there was people there were people missing people at home and wondering if it was worth it to do what we were doing in order to like miss our families all the time mm-hmm. um and you know for mike he was almost finished school um and colin had some school that you know like he could do something else if he wanted to and I'm not sure if there was like a legitimate breaking point for myself, but along the way, like there had been an issue, like Vadim and I had a stupid thing with a girl um, and me feeling like uh, that we should have communicated better with each other. Like we were just very different people when it came to communication. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was hard in general. So along the way of touring, I definitely, 
always had this feeling of like, this is not necessarily my project, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I never really totally felt like it was my band, even though I had created that last record with them. I felt like as we were touring the last few tours, it was slowly becoming a thing where I was like, I'm doing this for Mike and Gary and Colin and Vadim because they Mm -hmm. started this and they like the way that I had a dream with Brian to create this thing. They had a dream to do this and it's very important to them. And like Mm -hmm. I, whether we fight all the time or, or, or not, like I absolutely love all those guys. Um, like that, it was very much a brotherhood, you know, like those fights felt like brother fights. Like we're like, we were just bickering about like, just getting in each other's way all the time because we were fucking sleeping on top of each other in a van. So, yeah. <laughs> um, that also, so I, I was going to say, I don't want to like interrupt, but I also feel like that's like a, a sports connection as somebody like that played sports a lot. Like that's like when you're on a really good team and you gel with people, like you have those arguments because you are so close, but it's also because a lot of it comes through like you, you care so deeply about what you guys are doing together that, um, emotions just run high like i think that yeah. it's just natural for sure and familiarity breeds contempt but it's like it's like a family yeah. i mean you're with each other all the time you know each other you know how to really needle each other so you know you you have your little scraps and then then you pick up pieces and you move on yeah so i definitely my desire i don't know what it was that i wanted to do but i felt unhappy and I felt like I wasn't fulfilling something, right? Like it just wasn't all there. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that was the start of I I couldn't just quit the band. Like I felt like I couldn't quit the band um, without without really knowing where the other guys stood and how important it was to them and what they needed to do. So my memory is standing and this is after months of like having conversations with friends about like feeling this dilemma of uh you know what what should i do here what's the right thing to do um i remember being in i think it was ray harkin's house in california and just talking to mike alone for a little while and sort of just opening up to him and saying um you know like that I didn't want to put the pressure on him, but I felt like I really needed to know if it was something that he still wanted to do because I just felt like I was not fulfilled at the time. I'm sure I didn't word it like that Mm -hmm. uh, because it it was a really difficult question, like a really difficult conversation to start. So I'm not sure how well I worded it, but um he pretty much immediately was just like, dude, like I'm over it. (laughs) And, uh, and I was like, Oh, so Um, it's probably like everyone was waiting for someone else to say something. And then it's like, Oh, it it really might've been like that. Except for, I know Vadim would have, would have kept playing in that band for forever. You know what I mean? Um, so, you know, I had a long guilty conscience of having just these, very you know they they were my 
truth. They were my thoughts that I was feeling like, you know, like part of me loves this, but it's not really where I want to be. Um, and then Mike sort of, I guess Mike sort of set me free in that way. Like feeling like it's valid to feel this, you know, my, my memory of it is that I essentially quit, right? Like that Mm -hmm. the band didn't necessarily just break up. I was just like, yeah, well then if that's the case, then I don't really want to do it anymore. Um, and, and then I'm not sure where it went from there. Although I do remember what, what I think is Boise, um, having like a conversation in the parking lot where everybody had an understanding that this was going to be the end of it, sort of. So now the band is done. At that point in the band, it was like, it was walking on eggshells and things got a little scary. You know what I mean? It didn't yeah. feel like, it didn't feel like it was like we all came to this decision and everybody feels good about it. It feels like we came to this decision and we should probably get the hell away from each other for a while before something really bad happens. But we also remember playing that it wasn't the very last show, I guess, but we played a show in New York that was with like my chemical romance when they were not a big band yet. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure they played, but it was like, it was the last show before we did the last shows. I think again, my memory of all this shit's really bad. But, yeah, like, there was, like, a big, like, people came up and were singing along into the mic, and um, and Mike was like, this is it, so fucking, like, get up here, and he was losing it, and I remember just, like, throwing my guitar, and uh, just, it was one of the worst feelings I've ever had in my life, like, playing that show, and just being like, that's it, that's, this is how it ends, like, all the shit that we went through together ends like this, where we're all just fucking like want to smash everything and hate everything. Yeah. Um, so I'm really glad that like Vadim booked those last shows. And even though they got shut down, like they're legendary in a weird way for me because of that, you know, like because there was a giant sing along without any music and all this shit. Yeah. I still remember that. The, there was a, it was a, uh, that's Palanca Park, I think. The, yeah. Yeah. It was the Within My Veins song. I can't remember the name of it. I think there was like a big I just acapella sing-along. So I do remember that. I, I don't remember exactly what happened, but the way I remember Palanca ending was cops came in, walked up on stage, said everything's done. And then Mike, I don't know if he grabbed the same mic or grabbed one of the other like auxiliary mics that was on stage and started doing, um, I think, If I Were a Mask. Yeah. Yeah. So this that was a weird time too because it was like after having that feeling that I had at that that other last show where it was like somebody if if everybody felt the way that I felt at that show somebody might just stab somebody right yeah because all the crazy energy in the moment I was like fuck this shit sing the song like fuck the police and especially when police are around I have this really stupid like small man complex where I'm like fuck these dudes, like, drag me out of here, I don't give a shit, like, I'll fucking fight all of you, and, like, I I have the worst mentality when it comes to that kind of thing. Um, Wasn't Mike, like, screaming in the cop's face, too? But that's the thing, is, when it was happening, I didn't give a shit. Yeah. But, looking back on it, it was scary, because I, I definitely had this thing where I was like, Mike, don't fucking start choking the cop. (laughs) <laughs> I really like had a moment where I was like, please don't just start choking the cop out. And this could Thankfully, be really bad. <laughs> yeah. 
So did you have any kind of plan of what you wanted to do after the band was done? I remember you were like staying with different people. I know you were staying with me at my parents' house uh, at one point for like a Hold week on. or something. And uh, there's this classic night where it was like a Friday night and we, we set up TVs back to back and I played Final Fantasy VII and you played Final Fantasy IX, I think it was. Yeah, I that was that. That was, a, that was like the ultimate good time. Those might have been the days. It's so hard to tell. <laughs> yeah. Um, but well, during all of the, especially the beginning of the stay forward and on through that time, I was sleeping in my car in the parking lot at the diner most of the time. And oh, then man. a lot of time at the Shaw's, like I was lucky enough to stay at their house sometimes. Um, and then, um, I, then for a while, I think I was dating Heather and stayed at her house, but mm-hmm. But for the most part, I was like sleeping in cars and shit, and it sucked. Um, after the after the band split up, it's it's, it's kind of ridiculous because I was discontent and and um, felt like I wasn't in the right place during the end of the band. But then I didn't have any plan. Like I went home to live in a fucking like I don't know like five by nine bedroom in my mom's house mm-hmm. uh, that basically just fit a mattress in it and. Um, it was one of the worst time periods in my life. Like I had really bad depression cause I didn't know what to do next. I was, I think I was 26 and I had started having really bad social anxiety. Like I couldn't go anywhere. And that was slowly sort of turning into like agoraphobia a little bit. Just, mm-hmm. And it was just really like not, having a purpose is so bad for a human. It's just like, it can be debilitating. So, so I needed to make somewhat of a plan. And then I, I was basically just had the idea that I was going to start writing my own record. That was going to be a little bit, um, just like sort of a prog rock thing. That was just really weird. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I texted Colin and probably not text. I guess everything was like email and shit back then. And I asked him if he would want to play on it if I wrote some songs. And then he wrote back and said, uh, that sounds really cool, man. I'd really like to do that, but I'm I'm pretty busy right now. I've been working on this stuff with Anthony Green. And then he sent me um, This Changes Everything, which ended up being The Great Golden Baby, mm-hmm. and, and Handshakes at Sunrise. And he just sent them to me to listen to, but I just immediately like plugged in my four track and recorded guitar over them and sent them back. And I was like, here, I was just fucking around. And then Anthony heard that shit and he was like, oh, tell him to come up here. And then. (laughs) So that's how it went down. That's how all that happened. I don't know how long it was that I was just depressed at my mom's house, but it it sucked, man. I mean, it was like a really rough time. That, That just a lot of. So a lot of my path and journey, like to getting to where I am was just taking chances, right? Like. With yeah. this day forward, it was like, uh, I feel like I got to take this chance. And with Circa, it was just like, uh, I'm just going to like fucking jizz on this song and send it back to him. <laughs> and I think about your experience a lot. And I, I, I envy it in a way, even though it wasn't even though it wasn't fun. I mean, you're sleeping in cars. You don't know. You probably don't have much money. You don't know where you're going to be the next. But I wish I would have put the dedication that you did into things I actually enjoy doing. Because for so much of my life, I just did what I thought I was supposed to do. Like, oh, I'm supposed to go to college. 
I have no idea what I'm going to do. Oh, let me just pick a major out of nowhere that I, you know, that I'm bad at. And uh, just, I just always put the energy into the wrong things. And you, you took a lot of risks. I mean, I think you're, I think it's, uh, life is bullshit. I guess I'll just put it that way. I mean, (laughs) you're, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't kind of thing when I, when I look at everything holistically and, and I, I've always been very frustrated with um, decision making and um, the idea that like that you only get to do this once and choose these paths. Like I think that that has led to my depression over the years and, and mm-hmm. my anxiety and stress is like, well, I got to make the right decision because like you only get to do this shit once. And like uh, it's really easy to get into your head about that kind of thing if you let it. But I mean, you know, like I can barely support my family right like yeah. you know so it's like it, it's a really weird thing it's like yeah i did all this stuff that i'm i'm really proud that i did it i would not have done it differently um except i probably would have definitely thought about how money works at some point in time yeah. you know? <laughs> i'm still trying to figure that one out myself so you send this tape back to to colin and anthony and they're like yo let's get him on this how how did that play out? Or did you have to come up to like quote unquote try out or and see if there was like chemistry? How did how did that all go down? I don't remember what step two was. Um, it was sort of like that South Park episode where they're like, may, the underpants gnomes like make all the underpants, and then step three question profit. marks. <laughs> I don't know what step two was. Yeah, but um, I definitely remember that I at some point you know. I guess Anthony expressed interest in having me come up. And then I wrote a letter to Colin, which is probably still floating around somewhere. And I don't know what point in the process this was. Like maybe we had already really started making music together. Um, but, but I was just like, yo, like I know that I basically quit this day forward. Um, and was, so that's why I'm saying, I think I quit the band because I always felt responsible Mm-hmm. stay forward right um and i felt like i had to to uh convey to colin that like it wasn't because i didn't want to be committed to something that i quit you know what i mean like that the, it was for other reasons mm-hmm. um so so at some point i sent this email to colin just saying like this is what I want to do, man. Like, this is the type of music that I wanted to make. This is the kind of thing that um, I felt like I was reaching for, but not quite getting. And I want to like do it the right way. And I want to do it for as long as possible. And I want to, you know, pick the people that are, that are committed in the same way and on the same page. Um, But basically it was asking them to be a part of the band, you know? Yeah. And so, what, how did he respond? What what happened? Did he write one back? Did he call uh, you? I have no idea. I don't know. <laughs> well, you're, so, we, but we I, do I know, am here currently. We do know that you are in the band, so I'm guessing it, it worked out. Yeah. So <laughs> I, again, I don't know what happened exactly after that, but so and then so so it kind of was confirmed that I would be a part of it. Um, I don't remember how he responded to that exactly. Um, and then I think I was still in Maryland at my mom's house and I was on instant messenger and I was like, I was like, Colin, like, I think we should ask Nick Beard from Taken uh, to play bass. And he's like, mm-hmm. but he lives in California. Like, what, 
So I hit him up and I was like, Nick, like, what are you doing these days? And he's like, I'm, th- yeah, I'm going back to school, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, don't. And then I sent him <laughs> handshakes at sunrise and he was like, all right, I'll move out there. Wow. Like, yeah, he was just like, he heard it. You know, I think we all heard it, that there was like real potential, you know? Yes. And there was, because there was, there was a buzz in Bucks County, you know, cause Anthony had just gotten off Sayosin and it's post TDF. A couple of members are involved and everyone could feel that something special was happening. And I know a lot of people probably wanted to be in the band or try out for the band. I, th- I know I even asked like, Hey, let me try out for bass at one point, but everyone could feel that that something was happening. Yeah. And tell us about the writing of that first record. I mean, this is a wild situation. Like, a lot I know Steve and Nick don't know everybody and you probably didn't know Anthony very well and now we're all like hey we're living in this house together and we're writing this record that's that's going to come out on equal vision yeah man so I mean I was back up here sleeping in a fucking car again in the parking lot (laughs) and and, um I'm not sure we didn't yeah so we didn't have a car at first like Nick came uh and steve and like stayed at anthony's parents house for a little while like steve lived in jersey mm-hmm. um and steve getting into the band was like that was uh and that was basically colin i think like a colin and anthony thing but steve had hit him up about it um and then when steve came and jammed with us we were just like we had jammed with um who the hell do we jam with tj we jammed with tj tj and it was really cool um and he's he's an awesome drummer and like i feel like he's got a good brain for writing drums right like i think he looks at drums in a way that i look at guitar as like these are notes that i can play and not just like a beat you know what i mean yeah um and so that was really cool um and then we jammed with uh tommy the there's uh, all the Tommies around here confuse uh, yeah. the shit out of me sometimes. There's a lot of them. There's, yeah. Yeah. That's why I became Tommy D for a long time. So, so <laughs> you're Tommy D, but then there's Tommy T. Oh, Tommy Tremble. Yes. Tommy Tremble, yeah. But it was not Tommy Tremble. There's this other Tommy T that was like a jazz drummer or something like that. Oh, yeah, I don't know. So we jammed with that guy, and that was interesting too. I mean, he was a sick drummer, but it was like we were. I don't think we were like in the same place with him mm-hmm. and then when steve came and played with us it was just like wow this guy's very unique i think that was the major takeaway right like he's he's proficient but stylistically he's doing really interesting things um, yeah and we were just kind of like cool well let's just ride with this for a while um and then we all started writing like i remember just sitting in anthony's parents kitchen and just like People were like slapping drums on the table, playing uh, chords to the first song on that record on an acoustic guitar and getting this weird sort of offbeat thing going. And then, I mean, it was weird. It just like, it really all just sort of came together. And then again, that's writing that record was like, we all lived together and worked all day. Right. And then Anthony, I don't know what he did all day. He like, he he did Anthony things during the day and then at night he was up all night writing. <laughs> yeah. But, but I don't know, man, that shit was, uh, that was like a really magical time. Um, and I like the, 
I definitely remember coming up and writing a couple songs when we were still in Colin's basement. Um, we did like, uh, 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 I forget what the song is called, but you know, we, we put together like one or two songs there and developed some of the other songs. And then we went and recorded at like Josh Jakubowski's house. We recorded two demos there. Mm-hmm. Um, we recorded, um, we recorded another demo with, uh, where the hell did the stay forward record everything? Oh, Vince. Uh, yeah. Vince so Sky, right. Skylight. Yeah. 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 So we recorded one with Vince. Um, and then shit, man, I don't know that it's just, I don't know. That was a crazy time. I remember hearing act appalled was the first single that was released, I think on SoundCloud or something like that. And it, you know, it was an, X, it was, it still is an excellent, excellent song. And I was like, oh man, yeah, this is, this is going to be something. But when I finally heard the record, the first record, Juturna, I just, I had never heard anything like it. So I couldn't, it was not what I was expecting. And I couldn't even really comprehend it. So I heard it and I was like, okay. So then one night, you know, it was just back in like 2004. I went to Making Time, which is like a, it was like a monthly Philly party. DJ stuff. I went there. I got high. I went to making time. I continued to get high. And then I came home and got high again and put on the record again. And I was like, I, I was like, I get it. I, this is awesome. I love it. And, and, uh, you know, from then on, it was, I just loved it. It it just, it just took a little while to, to really grasp it. That first, a little while or a little weed. Uh, maybe both. <laughs> okay, yeah, I think that uh, the first record definitely has that, <laughs> yeah, that element to it. But I mean, uh, just to backtrack a little bit, there there was a sense when one of the things that was growing very tiresome with this day forward, uh, like a specific show I remember was um, in New Jersey. Like there was a church that we played at with, I think it was Poison the Well, and uh somebody just got their nose fucking exploded by an Mm -hmm. elbow. And I was so fucking tired of that aspect of hardcore shows. I wanted nothing to do with that shit. Right. Like I was so tired of being like, let's go play for people that like this shit and uh, hope that they don't have to go to the hospital afterwards. That was like, that was definitely part of being of the first couple records of Circa was like, yo, steer heavily away from from that like heaviness yeah. right mm-hmm. and let's try to find that pink floyd heaviness that makes you feel like like actually heavy in your body and your mind like dark right without without it just being like angry heaviness yes so so there was a lot of that mood in there i think based on that Oh yeah, you can feel it too. Still, when I go back and listen to Juturna, certain songs, it's it's like it's like stepping through a time warp back to two thousand four, two thousand five, and there was a lot of there was a lot of heaviness in life in my life at that time. So it was just you know I really connected with it. I remember randomly like when I was staying at Mike's house, there were I remember like a couple times where you were like, this doesn't have to go on the podcast. <laughs> oh no go ahead well we'll see if it makes the cut but you were like fucked up and like i remember i remember someone i don't know how it went down but just like um someone i guess maybe mike was worried about you ODing or something and then i had to like go 
take care of you in a yard for a little while and be like, dude, what is going on, man? Like, do you remember any of those times? Yes. There's a specific time I drove to Mike's house all messed up, uh, which is, which was a terribly irresponsible thing to do. And I was just, I was just gone. You know, I was drinking and I'd taken some pills. I didn't even know what they were. And, and then I remember randomly being in the, I think the Chili's parking lot with you and Heather. And then you had to drive, you and Mike had to like drag me back to my parents' house and like, I think help me inside. It was, there was some really dark times and there's, you know, from 2000, 2003, all the way up to 2017 when I finally, you know, managed to get a grasp on this thing. There was just so many moments like that of like, things are really bad. You know, things have evened out a little bit. Things are okay. Things are back to bad. And, you know, that particular time was 2003 was the first time where things really started to ramp up. And it was scary. And it's scary to think back on now because I, I really needed help. You know, there was just so much I had gone through in my life. But the prospect of asking for help or even like where to look for it was just, it, you know, it, there was just no chance at that, at that point. But I'm glad, one, I'm glad I'm lived. And two, I'm glad I found the help that I needed. Yeah. That's such a weird thing, too, because when I, like, I was writing this thing up for, um, for the suicide thing that I was talking about earlier. And, uh, you know, in the message, I'm sort of like, you know, if you need help, reach out. And just writing that down feels so stupid because, because I know the people that need the help the most literally can't fucking reach out. Like it's an impossibility. Like it's, it's, I always think about like with Keith, like there was times where I, I, Keith and I have had this conversation before. And again, this is like one of those things we can cut it if we don't want it on there. But like, Keith and I have joked about this before, but like, that's kind of our sense of humor is like I had at one point in time, I think in 2015 or 2016, I had written Keith's eulogy. Like I had written shit down. Like I knew like if I was going to like, if he's going to keep going doing this shit, like this is going to happen in the next six months. Like I'm going to fucking be at this kid's funeral. Uh, Yeah, that's fucking crazy. yeah, we have to read. We have to read that eulogy on the show. Uh, here's the worst part. I fucking found it the other day. Uh, probably, like I right. said the other day, probably about a month and a half ago. Uh, remember when I sent you that bulk of like, hey, here's a bunch of concert tickets, and these are some other things I had, like pictures and shit like that. Yeah. And when I was going through, it was with all that type of stuff, like all the, like the, hey, if I ever like go through and clean out my life, like these are the things I'm never never throwing out. That it fucking is in that pile of stuff. <laughs> So the, the, it'd be great if the worst part is that you were just embarrassed by your grammar. Oh. <laughs> that's, that's the other thing is, is like, it's, it, it, my handwriting is so, like, I, I'm left-handed and, uh, like, I'm, my handwriting is so horrific. There's a couple times when I, I know, and this is the worst part. I'm pretty sure I was, dr- I was pretty drunk when I wrote it. Yeah. Like I, I you wrote, Hey, you wrote his OD eulogy while you I were was fucking I was wasted. <laughs> I, I guarantee you I had had eight to 20. I, I had probably in any between eight and 12 drinks that night. I guarantee it. Like if I'm like, if, the, if that's where my mindset is like, Oh, I'm going to write out my fucking not dead friend yet. Like not yet. Like, you know, he's not dead yet, but he's going to be soon. I'll just fucking write it out rather than actually dealing with the real problem, which was like, Hey, go talk to Keith about like, Hey, we want to get him some help or, you know what I'm like? Oh, I'll just sit down with a piece of paper and fucking write it out. Like, first of all, getting to the point of asking for help took me 16 years. Yeah. 
um, or 14 years. Finding the right help is even harder. I remember cold calling doctors and psychologists. I remember going to doctors and them just telling me, uh, I can't help you with that. So it was a lot of trial and error. It's a lot of work. So, I mean, I don't know if anyone's hearing this, that it, that this could potentially help, but try to will yourself into asking for help and don't give up if, if shit is difficult right in the beginning, because it, you know, finding the right help takes work. And if you're dealing with problems with uh, alcohol and, and drugs specifically, message me and I can tell you what worked for me and maybe that'll help. Yeah, for sure. Like that, this so- is a, this is a weird time for me to be like, uh, to be five months sober during a quarantine is like, uh, I definitely have a box of, of like rare scotch in my basement. Yeah. Get rid of that shit. dude. (laughs) Dump it down the side. But it keeps appreciating in value though. See all the excuses you come up with. That's what, you know, it's funny. It's like when I, when I slowed down, like when I really like not when I, when I stopped, stopped drinking and I I was like, all right, I'm making like a, a concerted effort to not be drinking because a lot of what my like reason for stopping came out of like, dude, I just fucking hate feeling sick the next day like that. Cause I never was like a, Oh, I you know blackout and I did something fucking wild, but I always like would wake up the next day and be like, why the fuck did I do that? Like, I, I, why did I drink way too much? I knew when I made that last drink, this was going to make me sick and you regret it the whole next day. So with one of my big things was like, my wife still drinks. Um, and I would bring like, I, she would, get stuff and i would immediately we have two refrigerators in the house we have a like a refrigerator upstairs in the kitchen and then we have one in the basement that we use for like you know just uh like the kids juice boxes and you know soda and crap like that and every time she would put alcohol in the upstairs refrigerator i would immediately put it downstairs in the downstairs refrigerator just to be like not to have that constant reminder uh that first couple days of like fuck i'm not drinking anymore i can't even see it and now it's so funny. It's like she just leaves everything around, and it's like you get to the point where you're like, "I've done. I've gone this long. Why would I make any choice to kind of fuck it up?" And then it's that realization, like, "Fuck it, have to start at square one." Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that that's that's a good point. The, the playing out the reality of what would happen if I started drinking oh or anything else again. Yeah, and, and I think about the work and the months and months of pain and suffering and just, you know, all the shit I had to do to get through it, you know. So I just look at a drink or something else, and I'm like, mm, no, it would be fun for about 14 seconds, and then there would be a lot of work to clean it up yeah. again. And that's the best-case scenario if I live, <laughs> which, is not a, which is not a guarantee. Which is not, yeah, because that I it, so quickly, like, it, it turns from, like, especially – I, I mean, I'm just thinking back years ago, like our, our nights would go from like, oh, this is like fun and and carefree and like, let's go to a bar and hang out and like talk shit and have a good time to it quickly devolved into like, this is a problem. This is <laughs> this is something that like it, I remember being a couple times at your house and people that were not with us the whole night showed up and like walked in and we're like whoa okay <laughs> we're ready for this type of scene uh guys we'll see you guys tomorrow if you guys make it out the other end of this <laughs> like yeah it's like they're lame what they can't hang yeah you guys don't we guys want to fucking sit and play mario kart all night what the fuck <laughs> 
I definitely had like my first uh, drinking dream the other night too. So that was cool. But that, it was weird because it was like, I'm just taking a shot at a bar and, and then I'm like, uh, I can just, I don't have to tell anybody about this. No yeah. one will ever know. Oh, you just go straight into that, like, yeah. even yeah. in a dream, yep. right? Yeah. But uh, that's a fine place for me to drink these days. It's much less messy to just drink in the dreams. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. The, using dreams are cool because, you know, I, well, most of the time I'm always like looking for stuff. I never actually get it. But once in a while I do it and then I'm just like right away, like, oh, fuck. I do. Why are all my dreams just a guilt dreams though? Like, remember you used to just dream about Cindy Crawford and shit. Yeah. What happened to all that? Now it's like, now it's like I fucking murdered some guy that I don't even (laughs) know, and I got to cover. I got to hide from the police in a dream. Everything's a cover. Everything's like a. uh, I've done something extreme, and now it's me trying to clean up the mess of what I've done. Like, so, but that is that just because we have done so many. things that we have guilt about that we like need to free ourselves from I, somehow. I, yes. I think that's a lot yes. of what it has to do with like, cause I think back yeah. on, I, I think back on times just being at shows and it's funny that you were talking about like the being at shows and uh, like seeing things that were violent and you were like, Oh, we got to get away from that. I remember being at shows being like, this show's not violent enough. Let's go hit more people. And like trying to get <laughs> that, like, n- like the nastiness of hardcore, like, let let's let's get this as rough as possible. Like you know, like the whole like uh, guys up on the stage, like let's fucking put blood on the dance floor, motherfuckers. Like that kind of shit. We were like, all right, this needs to get to another place. And then, and then I go in my head of like standing there at shows now, where I'm going. There's so many people here that probably could punch me in the face, warrant like completely unwarranted. Walk up and hit me and be like, yeah, I deserve that. I totally, I absolutely 100% deserve you punching me in the face unwarranted because I, there was times where just being at shows was like, you were just doing stupid shit, like running into the crowd. Like I would just like run into the crowd and push people down. And it's like, what the fuck am I doing? Like I, I I'm 19 years old like I, and I'm being a complete asshole. I guess that's what being 19 is about. But there's times when you look yeah. back on it and you're just like, what? dumb decisions we made and like keith said before i'm just so glad we have that perspective to walk away from it and go like god that was dumb (laughs) i think there's there's some element of that's what being 19 is about but there's also like we were just fucking dumbasses there's there's no excuse for (laughs) like it's not just 19 year olds and when i see younger people these days and i'm like wait that kid's 20 and he's like running for office and doing all this cool oh shit God. yeah uh, i'm like what fucking planet did you grow up on and <laughs> yeah really uh but that's just like there's no excuse for us really being who we were i think the only real excuse is that like at least now there's a lot more awareness of a lot of like social what is socially acceptable is is like broadcasted onto social media at all times. So now kids at least are growing up with a sense of what's right and wrong. It's not just your parents telling you shit. Yeah. If they they didn't get around to telling you something, you're fucked. Cause I had to do a lot of learning on my own, you know, like I grew up single parent and I had a, a lot of conversations that just never came up, you know, like, man, you know, about that, there's something I've always wanted to ask you. When we were on a This Day Forward tour, 
you gave me the 200 North. Well, we had, there was a 200 North CD in the random merch. And you're like, you know, if we don't sell this, I want to give it to you. And you said the last song on the record was about your father. Do I have that right? Uh, yeah, that's right. Okay. And I went back and listened to that song and it was, it was very heavy and not heavy, like hardcore. I mean, like heavy emotionally. (laughs) (laughs) And from my experience with you, I know that your father was, was an important, very important figure in your life, but I don't know when, when did he pass and how did he pass? Uh, again, I don't know. So were you really young? (laughs) Yeah, that was funnier earlier, but (laughs) Um, <laughs> misapplying so, jokes the rest of the time <laughs> yeah so i mean he they my parents split up when he was younger i think um probably two or three or something like that mm-hmm. and then i stayed with my mom and uh and and we would visit every once in a while and he was always very kind and like uh laughed a lot it was very intelligent um and it wasn't until i was like I, I learned later that he was schizophrenic. I think I was like 20 something when I found that out. Right. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that for most of my life. Um, and when I was 16, I went to a Grateful Dead concert and did LSD and smoked way too much pot and then had like an insanely bad hallucinogenic experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I dropped out of school and dropped out of high school and just basically sat in my bedroom, played video games at night, all night. Um, and then I would sleep during the day when my mom was gone. Cause I was like terrified of everything. I was afraid to be alone. Mm-hmm. So I would try to sleep if nobody was there. Um, and like my friends would come to visit and ask me how I was doing. And I just, I couldn't talk. Right. Um, and it was, it was during that time. Like I sent my dad a letter asking him, I was like, yo, uh, shit's not good. This is what happened. Do you think you could come and like, uh, be with me for a while or like talk to me about what's going on? Um, and then the letter that I got back was like, I, it was basically like, uh, him saying that he wished he could help, but that, um, some people had turned him over to the police and that he's fasting and he's not going to comply with their demands, like he'd rather die first and just this wild shit, right. That mm-hmm. I, again, it took me like four or five years to reread this letter, you know, through a different lens, knowing that he dealt with schizophrenia, mm-hmm. uh, to see that it was fucking cuckoo bananas. Like, uh, and it was really sad, but, but that was, and then I think I was 30 years old and my friend Ian was like, I was talking to him about having this, um, really hard time with this breakup that I went through. And he was like, well, yeah, I mean, you have abandonment issues. And I was like, I have abandonment issues. And it was like (laughs) fucking just like so stupid. Right. Like just didn't even get it until then. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what that, that song is just sort of like, I think I'm like actually just super emo, like re reading the letter that he sent and like just fucking, uh, super melodramatic i was i was so fucking dramatic back then like 
Oh, me too. Uh, it's just time. ridiculous to look back on how I, I would comb uh, le- song lyrics for like the saddest ones and grab them to put in yeah. my instant messenger profile and just super, I mean, super melodramatic. A big, big part of like the past few years of me growing up is realizing how how I acted for so long because I was lonely. Like, oh, just yeah. based on being a lonely person who really needed to have something fulfilled that I have never figured out to create within myself, you know? Yeah. Um, like, I've done so much dumb shit. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, me too. I have this, um, like, almost, like, physical reaction of, like, my body gets, like, chills. Like, I can't fucking believe that was me. Like, I, like yeah. it was such a world away from where I am now. Like, I... It, it it it's like oh my god fuck that was me and that was me a, a decade ago you know what i mean it's yeah. fucking wild it's weird how much it's changed for sure so brendan i want to jump ahead a little bit circa survives album blue sky noise that was a, a major label release now you're the only person i know directly who's had an album out on a major label can you tell us some of what you experienced with that well, you mentioned earlier, uh, like the pressure of a label with this day forward. I didn't feel it back then. I do remember having conversations when Circa was starting to write Blue Sky Noise about, um, do we use this moment to craft these songs any differently than we have been, right? Like we have the potential and the know-how to make things that we still think are circus songs and are still true to us mm-hmm. but might fly a little bit more uh and then we pretty much were just like no so it might have come through anyway a little yeah. bit but but i don't think so i think we really just we spent a really long time writing that record too um mm-hmm. uh and then went to canada to toronto to work with a producer up there to record it but um the overall takeaways from it were that like uh major labels spend their money in insane ways. Yes. Even even at a time where it was like, you know, the deals if we had been a band six or seven years earlier, we would have been in like getting like those million dollar deals. You know what wow. I mean? Yeah. And that's just so weird to think about sometimes, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. May I mean maybe eight, maybe ten years earlier. I'm not really sure. But yeah. uh, it's crazy to see that they were like, Well, yeah, well, like we'll spend this money on we'll rent you this place and then you can do this over here. Uh and then if you need this studio this long, and it's like, uh, why don't you just give us that money <laughs> and we'll go do this thing over here? Um, I mean, I think the 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 money that was best spent on that was um in my opinion, was probably sending it to uh, to get mixed by Rich Costi, who mixed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that like really brought the record to life. But it was an insane amount of money, like twice as much to mix that record as it was to record most of our records. I would I would wow. say, yeah. Um, so when you spend that kind of money, does does the label bill you for it, or do they cover it? You have to re- like you end up I mean, in that, debt. That, that was all part of the deal, essentially. Yeah, I mean, there's always, I, there's always some sort of like you're recouping shit forever. But yeah, 
there's different types of royalties. So you start getting some of them earlier and then there's like the overhead of the royalties that, that are still being recouped. But I, I fucking hate talking about business and finances. So, well, I'm going to ask a couple more questions. So, so bear with me. <laughs> did did you, I imagine like, did you make more money at that time or was it like the same? I guess it's depends on how you look at the making money scenario. I mean, right now it's like we make more money off touring and shit. We made a huge amount of money on that record deal. Right. Yeah. So, um, but there was so much dumb shit that happened in that, at that time period at that record label, like very, very clearly there was a conversation of them saying, um, well, we want to use Imaginary Enemy as the first single and me saying, uh, you should use Get Out as the first single. Yeah. Like for sure. Yeah. And then and they wanted to use Imaginary Enemy and it was like, okay. <laughs> um, and I think that was like such a, like legitimately that if that one thing had changed, I don't know how it would have changed the like the trajectory of the band, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it would have been fucking different. I know that, right? Yeah. Um, and then they also shot a video for Get Out after Imaginary Enemy. Got some shithead director in who was like, check out this video that I just shot. And that's what he was doing. Us was like, he like, while we were there, he's showing us stills of this other thing that he did. He clearly yeah. didn't give a fuck about what he was doing. <laughs> and then made the worst shit that was unusable. Like we spent like like $10,000 or something or $5,000 on a video that just never saw the light of day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the A&R person that essentially brought us in and we were like her project, you know, she wanted to work with us. Yeah. Got moved to, uh, to Warner brothers in the middle, like before our record was released. Oh. So, so that's the kind of shit that you're dealing with at major labels. It's like, yeah, they didn't affect the album or the music, but when it came down to making some of the decisions, we don't think they made the right decisions, right? Right. And you never know if like the person that is really pulling for you is going to be there in a couple of days because it's just such a it's such a crazy space. I mean, that could happen at smaller labels too, but I don't know. I mean, there's I guess I shouldn't say that out loud, but I'll text <laughs> it to you later, but Okay. The way, like I legitimately just record labels are banks. Yeah. And uh, that's really all it is now. Yeah. Um, it, I, it wasn't always like that. I'm not trying to dumb it down entirely to that point, but like mm-hmm. that there's not much reason to look at it any more than that at this yeah. point. And I imagine like being in boardrooms or like having some guy call and be like, Hey, you might want to try this. Uh, I heard the record and you might want to yeah. try and doing this. Was there like some of that too? Uh, there was a little bit of it, but it, it very much, they were aware that we would listen to uh, any input that we felt was valid, we would try, right? Yeah. But if we thought, if we didn't like the idea, then we didn't do it. Um, so uh, there might have been like one idea on a song that we were like, cool, yeah, like we can cut that chorus in half. That's fine. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I don't know, man. The whole thing was just very weird. Uh, well, and it was cool in a way, just, I mean, the coolest thing about it was just to slap the Atlantic Records logo on a piece of vinyl that you made, right? And be like, well, oh, Led yeah. Zeppelin had that shit. <laughs> so that that's like the coolest thing. That's uh, awesome. But it's funny, the amount of times we offended them at Atlantic Records, like when we went in there and talked to like the higher ups, 
And one of the first things I said to like Craig Cowman, who was one of the main dudes there, he was like, I said something about like, yeah, like I'm not some dumbass like record collector kid. And this dude is in the is in like this magazine two weeks later for having the biggest record collection on the East Coast. <laughs> <laughs> but the amount of times we like put our, our foot in our mouth up there was fucking crazy. Uh, I was, I would have loved to have seen some of that. That's gotta be classic. We were now, never supposed to be there. I mean Yeah. But it was good know. that you did it. I mean, it was probably like just an an interesting had, experience. Yeah, we had a couple really good relationships there and and it was a good experience it, as it was a, it was a learning experience. We took a lot from it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were definitely some frustrating moments, you know. I mean, I think it was huge for the band to do yeah. that. Yeah. And you got to play some – was that when you played, like, those random big gigs at the time? Like, I know you played with Linkin Park at one point. I don't know. That, that might have been around then. I guess that makes sense. Um, Did they get you on some, like, bigger shows like that? They got us into some bigger shows. Yeah. I remember being in Texas and going, like, hitting them up and being like, yo, I'm Rush is playing down the street. Can you get me in? So we went to see Rush. Nice. And then the ne- next day they got us into Van Halen. Oh. Shit like that. And then our manager was like, can you please stop hitting up the label for free stuff? <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't know if, if everyone knows this, but Brendan, I think you are personally responsible for making the Sunny Day Real Estate Circa Survive split happen where we where we were gifted with uh, a new Sunny Day Real Estate song. Tell us about yeah, that. Yeah, man. I totally forgot about that. Um, yeah. So, like I said, they're definitely um, definitely still one of my favorite bands, and I, I was just totally obsessed with them forever. And I went to see them. What year was it? They did that those reunion shows. Two thousand eight. Yeah, that makes sense. So I went to two of those shows, and they played new songs. I think they played two new songs. And then a while later, we had recorded a song that we didn't really know what to do with because it was sort of weird. Mm-hmm. And um, I hit up a guy I know in Philly who, like, Jeremy Anik used to stay at his house when he would come through. He might still stay with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was like, yo, can you get me in touch? Like, I know they have a song recorded. And I know it's just sitting there and there's no reason for that, right? Like people right. want it for sure. Right. Um, and then I got in touch with Jeremy, which was super weird. I mean, for me, that was definitely one of the weirdest moments uh, in my life, just talking to this dude who essentially was one of the people that set me on this path, right? I would be nervous. Uh, I would be very nervous. Yeah, for sure. Um, but he was cool to talk to and he was like, yeah, I think that song's cool that you guys wrote. Um, you know, I don't know. Like, I don't really... He was very inquisitive, um, had a lot of questions about how we would do it and if I thought people really would want to hear it in that way and um, sent me, like, copies of of different masterings of it to see what I thought about them. And I was just like, this is crazy that this is happening right now. You're asking for my opinion about like this song. Like, first of all, that song is fucking awesome. It's It's so so good. good. I remember being at a party and when the split was out and I was playing it for everyone and I'm like, my friend made this happen. This song is so fucking good. And, but everyone there like listened to such lame shit. They didn't even care. I was like, dude, like you don't, you don't realize what's happening right now. Yeah, 
I didn't write the song. I want to make make sure that's clear. <laughs> I didn't make it happen per se, but uh, um, I mean, that's just really cool. They, they, they were down with it. He talked to the other guys and they were like, yeah, that's cool. Let's do it. Um, and we got it out and it's fucking, it's just, I'm like super pro- proud of that, proud of making that happen. Yeah, and I'm glad you did. It's it's such a good song, and I really I know there's like more unaired material out there somewhere, and I just I really really hope we get another record one day. That would yeah, that would be the best. Well, now, I, I wanted to say one thing real quick. Yes, I, I think if this day forward had made one more record at the time, not now, but at the time, that it would have been the best this day forward record. I don't oh, know I why. Think so. I think that, but like if we had had more time to grow together kind of mm-hmm. then again it might have been in, in total chaos and we might not be friends anymore so now brendan circus survive is is one of the more popular bands i know so i want to i want to ask you some rules of rock think of this of the pers- from the perspective of of me and you not just some random person on instagram or whatever uh so i want to know what's okay and what's not okay so i'm going to go through these questions and you give me the answer is it okay for me to ask you to get on the guest list. You, for, oh, for you personally? Yes. Not just some ham bone off the street? Not just some random person online or some random, you know, we're talking me. Did you create this segment yes, just to know if you could get on the guest this list? This is exactly what he's been waiting for. Is he wants to ask <laughs> you to be on the fucking stage. This is what he's, this has been a two hour Don't. build up to him being like, yo, can I come on stage? <laughs> Don't blow the rest of the fucking question. God dude. damn it. Like, this is all this has been. <laughs> question, question one. Is it okay for me, Keith, to ask to get on the guest list? Yes, it is so frustrating for me when uh, a close friend does not talk to me about that. Okay. Uh, and then later they're like, I didn't want to ask. I'm like, Yeah, because I, I always think I'm bothering you guys. So I know that's, that's right. not the case. I mean, I get it. I totally yeah. get it. But yeah. at the same time, it's like, all right, now that that conversation's been had, just fucking ask me next time because I've had to tell Mike like a thousand times. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Like, uh, or he'll leave a show. He'll fly to fucking Denver, yeah. leave a show, and then be like, Duh, that was great, man. See you next time. Didn't want to bother you guys. Mike, you flew to Denver. <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah, I've, I've done that move. We too. want not, to not see not you. Denver, but like, but. Yeah, um, we want to see you. Yeah, okay. So number two, is it okay for me to ask what time you play? Like, let's say I'm going to two shows on the same night and I need to space it out. Sure. Okay. Number three, is it okay to ask to hear an advance of a song, a new song or album? No. Okay. Why? Because I don't want to give it to you. Don't put me in that position. Some people are totally fine with it. Wait, okay. what are you, was your question? Like let's say you have let's say you have a new album coming out, and I'm like, "Yo, can I hear it beforehand? Like before everyone else?" No, you got to come sit in my car with me because I'm a person who has anxiety about shit, right? So I would I would be the same way. Yeah, I don't want to be the guy that leaks it. A lot everybody's different about that, though. So, all right, number four. How now? Sometimes I see people on stage watching you guys. Like fucking Mariakis is always up there. (laughs) How does he get up there? does he ask you and then you let him or, do, or like, do, do you, I have to be asked by you? How Is it Nick work? or John? Cause I have John. different answers. John. John. Always John. I mean, if you're backstage with us yeah, and you're hanging out. Yeah. 
it's fine. Okay. Just it's you're you're allowed to just walk up there. It's like I think there's like an obvious line of like, well, I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't really be visible to the crowd and I need to stay out of the guitar tech's way. So there's an area right over here. Yeah. That is safe. You just have to be respectful about it, right? Okay. I don't I want just, you on stage because you're a heckler. That's the no, last no, no, thing no, no, I no. need. No, I was a heckler because I was always fucked up. I don't do that. That's anymore. great news to me because I, because now I know that I could go to a show with you again. Yeah. Because I never wanted to be at a show with you. I, I was, was a disaster. I was a disaster. And I, it's, it's embarrassing. Like, liability I, I, like that. I will say that I, I, I've been to numerous shows with you where it, I could, I can see you cross a line where I go, I don't want to be standing next to Keith during this next band. There's a long list of people and bands who, who agree with the both of you, but I'm happy to, I'm happy to announce those days are over. And I just, nice. I just, I just stand there and watch and do my thing. Uh, number five, is it okay to ask to come see you before you play? Uh, and if yes, like what's the cutoff time? Like, obviously I don't want to hit you up five minutes before you go on and be like, Hey, I want to come back and say hi. So what, what's the cutoff time? I don't know. Like 35 minutes for me, probably. Like I, I just need to not be running around yeah. right before I go on stage. Right. Like I need to be taking a shit. <laughs> gotcha. so and number six you've already answered is it okay to, to come see you after you play and that's always a yes yeah i mean that is a time where it's like i think anthony is super drained at that moment and he needs space after a show right and some sometimes i need like i think you should give the band like five minutes or ten minutes or something and then absolutely come hang out Okay, so now I know that that will lift my anxiety moving forward. He's slowly crossing out this ask to be on stage. <laughs> so here's the thing: he no. sent all you. You have 100 percent thought this through in terms of like next time you guys are playing anywhere near him, be ready for this exact same set of questions, except in reverse order of being like, "Hey, you guys are playing here. Can I come? Can I come backstage?" Can I come on stage? Can I, can I, can I jam can with I, you? Can I be the guitar tech for the night? So what, what's your favorite part about being in the band? Um, oh, my God. So many things, bro. Like, so many things, man. It I mean, honestly, uh, I, I'm not sure if I could say anything particularly smart about it, but playing a show is something that I miss really bad right now. Yeah. The, the outlet of that and the connection of that there's nothing else like getting high or getting drunk or having sex or like, you know, none of those things fulfill this thing. It's completely different for me. And I, I imagine everybody has their one thing that mm -hmm. does that for them, hopefully. But for me, it's, you just can't get the outlet from, from exercising and listening to music or whatever that you could, in being in this atmosphere and you know like that's something that like tommy i think you said on one of the first podcasts is like there there's something about just the community of being in the moment with everybody that is so powerful right like and especially for like smaller shows and i think we try to create that atmosphere at most of our shows yeah, and a circus show in particular has has to be amazing to play because everybody is going off, and not in a in a bad or violent or crazy way. Everyone's going off, having fun, and everyone is 
knows every word to every song and they're shouting them back at you. So it's, it's, it's crazy to hear everybody singing along. <laughs> yeah. I've, ne- um, I've never seen that for any other band. Yeah. It, it's also funny to think that like, we used to have those shows where people would beat the shit out of each other back in the day. Right. And now yeah. it's like, we've stopped so many shows where Anthony's like, yo, did you just hit that guy? What the fuck are you doing? Yeah. You can't do that shit here and everybody claps. Yeah. And, and it's like, now that's happened so many times that I'm like, can you just please stop doing that? I just want to play this song. <laughs> and what's the worst part about being in the band? What's the worst part? I mean, yeah. the worst part will always be not, not being able to be present with your loved ones. That's all. I think that's always the hardest part about band, right? Having to adjust to two completely different lifestyles. Yeah. And the pe- people in your lives have to also adjust with you and give and be patient with that. Mm-hmm. That like that the dynamics are going to change when I come home. I can't jump straight into parenting, even if I want to, or like right. um, disciplining because because they're both used to a certain way of doing it. And I can't just be like, can't just jump in and start doing it or there, it fucks everything up. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I mean, I used to come home from tour and I've come home even having a family now and said, yo, love you. I have to go to an Airbnb and just sit by myself for a day Mm -hmm. Um, because I've spent so much of my life, like living in a box with people. So this is a really like the quarantine thing sucks balls for someone like me who's like the only way that I know to stay fresh for people is to get that little bit of like go over here, go away from everyone, don't have no one talk to me or ask me for anything or bitch at me about anything. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's I, like I'm, I'm trying the, to figure out how to do that here. I'm the same way and it it's very hard to it's very hard to ask for that space and a lot of times it can be hard for people to hear that because you know we have obligations but i mean it is what it is yeah tommy i'm trying to figure out if we I, like did we come to your house in pittsburgh back in the day and oh, stay no, there? i never lived in pittsburgh that's not you. So I'm trying. There's too many fucking Tommies. I'm trying to figure out who the hell that was. Yeah, that no, that I didn't. Uh, the only person that lived out in Pittsburgh at one point in time was uh, J.D. Foster, the guy that used to play drum. Man, that's who yeah. it is. Yeah, that's who it is. Oh, okay. Yeah, so Tommy we was in that audience one with him. Right. So I'm trying to figure out like if we've met like other than just at circus shows in the past, uh, like back in the day. I, day. I don't think so. Because he was always away at college, or, or yeah, you weren't you weren't like around around. No. We didn't reconnect till later. No, where did you go to college? Uh, so I went to uh, King's College in Wilkesboro, and then when I came home, I got another degree uh, from Temple University when I was living when I was actually already um, teaching. So we're going to do something special now. Are you ready for this? Uh, no, I'm also not ready for this. <laughs> okay, Brendan, it's time to play. Who would headline? <laughs> this is where we take two bands and based on social media followers, total plays, and overall legacy, you have to guess who would headline. And <laughs> <laughs> then, uh, are you ready to know, play? I don't know what that level's like on your. It's end. incredibly <laughs> fucking loud on my. <laughs> <laughs> Clear as day, though. It's good. It's going to be fun later. Are you ready to play? Who would Yeah, let's do it, man. 
All right, we're going to give you five questions, and you have to Is there a, like a buzzer or anything? Oh yeah, I've got all that. All right. So number one, Drowning Man, or today is the day. Drowning Man. I'm sorry. <laughs> the answer. Is today. Oh wait, I thought you uh, were saying which which one would I want to headline? No, we should do a twofer. Okay. Then you gotta uh, edit that one out. No, no, no. This is the game, man. This is the game. Are you, you saying get... that? Are you telling me that I was wrong? You are yeah. wrong. Listen, I'm going to say it again. Uh, based on so total social media followers, total plays on Spotify, and overall legacy. So you have to take into account how long have they been broken up? When was the last time they played all that stuff? Okay. All right. Okay. Well, I will actually try on the next one. Right. I just really love the the Drowning Man EP. Right. So yeah. when you said Drowning Man, I almost just said Drowning Man before you said the second <laughs> band. That's, that's one of my favorite. That is How to Light Cigarettes is one of my favorite hardcore records oh, of yeah. all time. All right. Well, I'll try not to fuck this next one up. Yeah, please don't. Number two, Texas is the reason or Promise Ring. Now that's if they played a show together today in 2020. Texas is the reason. Or promise ring. Ugh. What this one's difficult. Yeah. Um I guess promise ring. You're right. It's promise ring. So moving Dude, Texas on. Texas to- is the reason was huge for me. Oh god. Like it, for, for they, playing guitar. Oh me dude, me too. They they pretty much I just pretty much borrow from them. They taught me how to play guitar yeah. Number three. Grateful Dead or Led Zeppelin? Um, and every nobody's dead. You're saying in these bands, nobody's dead. Every, everybody would still be alive, and they all original members. And so, when did they stop playing? Grateful Dead or Led Zeppelin? <laughs> uh, it's the Grateful Dead for sure. I'm sorry. The answer is Led Zeppelin. They just totally dwarf Grateful Dead on total plays and legacy and everything else. Yeah, but Grateful Dead was the like the biggest touring band of all time. I, 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 uh, for, for, a, for a certain population, Brendan, if you're confused like, by this game, you're not alone. I'm not confused. I just I'm I think that we have to take a correct answer, quote unquote, with a grain of salt. <laughs> <laughs> Number four, hum or failure? Uh, failure. With that, I just saw that show. Your headlines. <laughs> that's right, and that's that was my exact basis for that question. Right. Number five, audience of one reunion, or this day forward reunion. Jeez, how can you possibly have an answer to this? Yeah. Did you and do a poll? There's an answer. Think about it. I guess it's audience of one. My God. No. Listen, think... this day four does not reunite unless you headline. Oh, I forgot. I should yeah. know that. As a listener of the podcast, I should be aware of that. <laughs> you should know. You should know. Yeah. Now, I'm going to well, end. That, but... is act, that is actually true. I would not do a this day forward reunion unless we were headlining, unless we were entirely in control of the venue situation. Exactly. Where we were having, like, all the elements of the show would have to be controlled by us. I'm not. It's... I'm not interested in doing like a this is hardcore reunion where it's just like you're just on it. Exactly. Yeah, it's just thrown into the mix of a bunch of shit. 
Exactly. And that's, and the we also never really felt like we were, especially in the end, never really felt like we fit in with just the hardcore scene. We were like an outlier, no matter where we were or who we were playing with. People were always like, what is this? <laughs> right. Like, right. <laughs> right. So let's talk about the, this day forward potential. <laughs> now we've spoken to Mike and Mike wants to will an equal vision fest into existence where a bunch of equal vision vans, old and new would play. Vadim just laid it out and said, you know, there's been communication, but it would take a lot of time and effort to get to the reunion. And we just haven't gotten there yet. I want to hear your perspective on this. Uh, I don't know. I think it's a, I think it's a weird thing to do anything that involves like a a legacy show. Um, There, it, like if you talk to, most of us, well, if you talk to me and Colin specifically, we overthink everything, right? Mm-hmm. So, so we'd be the guys that are like, uh, yeah, I mean, like, s- s- there's a voice of, there's like a small voice that definitely wants this. Uh, there's also the possibility we like do this show and fucking nobody shows up like back in the day. And then that's just super weird, right? Like for everybody. Yeah. Um, So bottom line is the same thing that I always felt with the band before. Like to me, this day forward was like um, a fun thing that I wanted to do with people that I cared about. And I would basically do if Mike and Gary and, and those guys were like, yo, I really need to do this like as an outlet. I want to do it. Mm-hmm. I would make it happen in any fashion that I could, right? But I also would want to be smart about it and be have it in a an environment that was controlled for us and want it to be like, all right, we're doing like a relatively small thing for yes. this amount of people and we're not like having these high hopes of how this is going to be this crazy reunion show and it's going to be insane. It's like... And that's the exact um, way you should do it. You do a, a you know a small show or a couple shows and see how it goes, and and that's it. You take it from there. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I I would totally be down for that, and um, I think it could be a lot of fun given the right situation. But there are, as Vadim pointed out, a lot of factors that make it not as simple as it should be. You know. Right. I think it like, will happen eventually. I think everyone wants to do it. I just I just don't think it's time yet. And yeah. when it's time, it's time. Well, Brendan, we want to thank you yeah, so dude. much for coming on for coming on the show. This was this was fantastic. Cool. And we'll have dude, to have you back. We'll have to have you back on, and we'll we'll cover the rest of the uh, the circa discography and whatever else is going on. Say goodbye to the listeners. Keith, say, say goodbye go to the listeners. I'll wrap it up for you. Goodbye, listeners. We love you, and keep listening.